Good morning. I would like to read from James, third chapter, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in, who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. It's great to be with you this morning. Thanks for gathering with us for worship. It's an honor to be again back to regularly being able to serve you with the Word of God. Before we look at the text, just a couple personal comments. Thank you to all of you for just your care for our family in this rough season. We are very grateful for all the things that you've done or said and your prayers, and we appreciate that. I also just want to just extend publicly thanks to our staff and our elders who have just done a wonderful job and continue to. And I am just blown away by the men and women that we have serving in those various roles. And I am grateful for them. And honestly, we, we all should be. And I want to mention briefly a word of thanks to Ed Titcomb. He was in the first service, so I can really brag on him now. But uh, he served as elder chair for several years, and that's a significant role. I mean, I'm, I'm now at the beginning of my 10th year here at this church, and I've seen how significant that role is for our church family and even for me specifically. Uh, and his ministry among us was providential in the way that he served with a unique skill set and experience that the Lord used to bless us in many ways. And so I just wanted to state that publicly because when that transition happened between him as, as leaving the elder board and going out as elder chair and Mark Tigelar coming in, I, I didn't get to state that publicly and I wanted to now. We, we need to be thanking the Lord for such individuals who step into these roles and serve. And there are many among us, whether it's in official office like elder or in staff positions or hordes of volunteers that serve, those are all gifts from the Lord. And I just want to acknowledge that publicly and specifically thank Ed for his service and now Mark for stepping in. So we've gone from, a, from an Englishman to a Dutchman, so it'll be a little different, but it'll be good. Well, as we uh, turn to God's word this morning, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, open our eyes, or as this text commands, help us to open our hearts to the things that you're going to reveal about us, about the human condition, and about Christ's redemption and the Spirit's work among us. Help us to see the beautiful things in your word, we pray. Correct us and teach us, rebuke us, and train us in righteousness so that we may gratefully and faithfully respond to your grace toward us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, that opening question that Marshall read in verse 13 is really not just a pure question. Uh, Questions can be asked in lots of different ways. They can be asked assuming a yes answer. They can be asked assuming a no answer. And they can also actually be a bit of a challenge. This is not a regular question. This is a challenge. Who is wise in understanding among you? Like, that's not just rhetorical. That's like literally James firmly but graciously walking up to you and saying, are you wise? Are you mature? Do you think you have wisdom in your life? Maybe we would frame it differently. Maybe we would say it this way. Are you a mature Christian? Are you a skilled disciple of Jesus? Those are good questions. And if you think you are, or think you're not, how do you know? Like, what would you say would define a mature Christian? Or in James' words, someone who has wisdom and understanding. That's significant. So before we even get anywhere in the text, let that challenge confront you. The Lord today, who is not just a redeeming, gracious God, but a loving Father, wants to see growth in his children. And so in this text, on this morning, he asks, how are you doing in your wisdom and maturity in your life? How would you know if you're growing in certain ways or you're you're not? James teaches us that the answer to the question is not actually found in words, but in deeds. Look at the rest of 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. That's a good phrase. By their good life. A wise and understanding Christian is one that lives a good life. As Vera said, peeking at my notes earlier this week, a good life, what does that look like? Is it, a, is it success in worldly terms? Is it a house full of babies and grandbabies? Is it not having to worry about financial distress? Is it a healthy body? Is it success in the eyes of your colleagues and other professionals? What is a good life? Maybe we could frame it this way. What is a good person? Like, have you ever said, he's a good man? Or she's a good woman. What do you mean by good? The Bible's using the term here. And it defines it. That's the little comma after life. Let them show it by their good life, comma. And you could could almost translate that. Let them show it by their good life. That is, or said another way. Let them show it by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now, there's the answer. The Bible loves to do this. It loves to give you one verse where it gives you the message, and then the rest of the verses explain it, like commentary. So there's the thrust. James is one to ask. He wants you to answer the question, are you mature? Do you have wisdom? If you do, it's not because you answered an essay exam and you did really well. It's not a class you take. It's actually a life you live. And that life manifests itself by deeds by habits and practices and a thousand decisions every day done in the humility that comes from wisdom. This definition makes 
humility the source of wisdom. Humility becomes the crucible in which wisdom is formed. Again, what, what does that even mean, humility? Right? I mean, interestingly, Casey's starting a class on that literally next week. I mean, you can spend eight weeks thinking about humility. What is the biblical definition of humility? Certainly Christ exemplified that. And what did he do? He submitted to the will of his Father. He wasn't moved or shaken by the agendas around him. He was willing to receive what was duly his. How about even just before his death when he prayed, Lord, if you can't take this, come from me. This is going to be rough. But if not, your will be done. Humility is necessary to triangulate between our trust in God and our trials in life. The, the two things that we often are wrestling with, right? We have, a, we have our situations, we have our circumstances, we have our life crises, we have our difficulties, and then we have this doctrine, this belief in our mind that God is totally sovereign, that he's totally loving, he can do all things, and we know those two, but what connects those? Like, what helps those become reality? How do I live with total uncertainty without even knowing what tomorrow may bring, especially when a crisis faces me? How do I live in such a way that trusts that I can entrust myself and my life and my children and my family and my community or whatever it may be, entrust them to God? Because I know in my mind that he is sovereign. He, I could pass that test. He is sovereign. Check. He is loving. He controls all things. He is my heavenly father. But how does my heart give that to him? And the answer would be humility. That I let God be God. I let him define the terms. When it doesn't look like something I would choose, I submit my life to him. Humility is Submission to God's ways and submission to God's will. Brothers and sisters, that is way easier to say than to do. Again, J James didn't say, hey, you want to live the good life? Just pass the exam. You'll be good. Like, knowing it is not half the battle. Living it is hard. I believe in a sovereign king. I've got to entrust my life, my emotions... My body, my children, my spouse, my community. I have to entrust those things to his perfect timing and plan without him filling me in along the way of every little detail or every little remedy or him even always alleviating every ounce of suffering. That's humility. It's letting God be God and me submitting to him. That's hard to do. Humility is submission to God's ways and to God's will. It's knowing that we're unworthy before God. We have no rights we can claim. We, we, in, our, in our world, in our culture, we speak of rights all the time. We have a very different set of rights before God. James warns us that two character tra traits impede the humility of wisdom. Look at verse 14, right? He defines it in 13, then he says, but, now here's the contrast, 
If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Now, before we look at those two, notice what frames them. If you harbor these things in your hearts, that's a powerful image. Harbor like you're, 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 you're parking there. You're letting them park like a boat at the harbor. You're letting it sit in your heart. You, you, you might not necessarily be employing it all the time, but it's there. If you let it reside in your heart, it's like a cancer. And James is saying, like a cancer, you don't want that in your body. But if it's parked in your heart, then when life gets hard, guess what it's going to do? It's going to activate. And all of a sudden, these two things are going to impede you from trusting in God with all humility and living a life of wisdom that is the good life that God has called you to. So what are these two things? The first is bitter envy. That would be this craving, this innate craving of the flesh for the life of another person. Not every detail, but that comparison game that is impossible it's instinctive you're like oh she's pretty oh he's buff oh nice car look at those kitchen counters you see i mean again it, on the surface it feels as neutral as can be like it's not a big deal yeah those are nice counters or that's a nice car on the surface is fine but if you park it there if it's constantly fostered in seemingly neutral ways. Guess what happens? You've literally hardened yourself to receive from God what he gives you. You have not taught your heart. The Lord is the one who gives. And I will find my contentment and my satisfaction in God alone. That doesn't mean you don't know what good counters look like. Or what a sweet ride some vehicle might be. It just means you, in humility, receive from God what he gives you. Now, again, maybe with the kitchen counters, it's not a big deal. Now I'll talk about health. Now I'll talk about brokenness in family. Now I'll talk about financial crisis that we may face. Like kitchen counters and cars kind of fade in the distance, but when the real life struggles hit, are you harboring a a bitter envy that has literally limited you from saying, your will be done. You are God and I am not. And I, I may have this ailment or this financial struggle, or the, and that person may not, but I will receive what you give to me, O king, because I will not let my heart be looking and lusting of the things of this world. The second trait we are warned against harboring is selfish ambition. And that would just simply be a drive for success and achievement. Again, almost always in human worldly terms. Both lack a proper humility under God that can handle life's difficult terrain. Like a cancer, right? Just literally in your body growing. If you allow it to remain, to harbor in your heart, to use the Bible's own words, if you allow it to harbor there, when life gets difficult, those will dominate. And you will not be able to say, Lord, I receive what you give. That doesn't mean, by the way, it doesn't mean you like it. It doesn't take emotions out of it. It doesn't take the pain away. It just simply means I am not God. 
And I will not live my life or let any part of my life be dictated by terms other than what God said. Now go back to that first question. So who among you is mature? When those struggles come, how well do you do? It's a tough question. It's not one answered easily, and it probably wouldn't even be properly asked on an exam with paper and pen. It's one that takes years, decades to fully answer, and all of us in some way are in process. So let me present James' challenge to you again. Who among you here, disciples of Jesus, is wise and understanding? Who among you is living a good life that God would define as good? By their deeds, not just your words. For some, this challenge and its explanation might humble you. It might actually break you. Remember, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training. That's not a bad thing. That's not bad for the father to say to his children, I encourage you to grow, point out an area of weakness in love and grace. God's word does that. At times, God's word encourages the brokenhearted. At other times, it speaks to the hard-hearted. For some, this challenge and explanation might humble you because you are not there. That's okay. Receive it as from the Lord. Remember what verse 14 says, how verse 14 ends, do not boast about it. If, if this is you, you're not that wise person yet. Do not boast about it. How foolish would that be? But, but more than that, don't deny the truth. Like if that is you and you just say, Lord, I'm not there. I am not there. Like I don't collapse under the pressure. I don't think bitter envy, you might say, or, or selfish ambition dominating me. But to be honest... When I think of the good life, it's probably defined on worldly terms way more often. It's probably defined on things of sex, of success, or comparison, or those realities that are not exactly what God would define. Maybe for others, this, these verses awaken you to the biblical definition of the good life. Remember what Vera was asking our kids? So how would you define a good man or a good woman? I'm hoping it would be through James 3, 13, and 14. Now, the rest of this text gives a definition of bad wisdom, or what I'm just going to call disordered wisdom. That's the word that James uses. And then the last two verses talk about good wisdom, like the, the kind of wisdom that this reflects. Again, remember what the Bible loves to do. loves to give a basic point and then explain it. So let's look at those. And, and I frame it in this second point this morning and last is this. This is James pastoring us. Like James concludes with a negative and then a positive description about wisdom. So you can see what not to do or better yet, the symptoms of a life that's not the good life. And then you can see the fruit or symptoms of a life that is fostered in humility, a kind of wisdom in how we live. So let's look first at Verses 15 and 16. First, the negative wisdom. Verse 15. Hope you have your Bibles and you're looking at the words with me. Such wisdom, notice it's in quotes, because it's 
the anti-wisdom, really. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It's not divine. It's not from those who live in the home of God or dwell in his family. But is, and then there's three depictions. It is earthly. It is unspiritual. And it's even demonic. I'm going to look at those with you. You could even call this wisdom of the world, earthly, wisdom of the flesh, that's our innate broken condition in light of the fall, that's unspiritual, and then the demonic wisdom of the devil. Earthly wisdom would be completely defined by the categories of this world, fallen creation, fallen culture which means it's transitory, it's fickle, it's weak, and it's broken. Unspiritual would be reflective of the fallen flesh. Right? We all have that broken condition. Remember that already, not yet? We are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We are born again, John chapter 3. God is renewing us. There's an already, but there's still a not yet. Are we banking and living out of the already, or are we acting according to the not yet, the flesh, rather than the redeeming work of the Spirit on us? And then that word translated demonic, it actually is not the normal word for demon. This is the only time this Greek word is used in the whole New Testament. It probably is best translated as devilish. I think it means about the same thing as demonic. I think the NIV is right to translate as demonic. But it's not the true word for a demon. It's devilish. It wants you to see it as dictated by the father of lies, by Satan. It is anti-Christ. These are not meant to be exhaustive diagnoses. Well, that's as if every act is, well, that's worldly. Oh, that's devilish. That just looks fleshly. You don't, you don't need to do that. You just need to know that there, there are these counter forces. These words give us lenses to see the way our lives are shaped by forces that are opposed to God and his word. And symptoms of their influence will be, as verse 16 notes, will be seen in a disordered life and evil practices. See where 16 ends? For where you have envy and selfish ambition, remember it's, it's, it's parking in your heart, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. That is, you will find a life that lacks consistency in character and behavior. Tell me if you've seen this. Or a life that is restless and unsettled. It's always craving more. It's never content. And a life that succumbs to behaviors that are clearly beneath the good life that God defines. Now, that can be all of us from time to time. But God wants to form you, his disciples, sons and daughters of the king, to find a contentment, a satisfaction, a peace, a consistency of character, a compassion for other people, and a stability that no matter what comes your way, you are not controlled or defined by it. 
Again, that, that isn't just given to those who are rich in contrast to those who are poor. That isn't given just to people in one country over people in another. That isn't just given to people who are older in contrast to those who are younger. This is the work of the Spirit in the life of a disciple. Let's look at that last two verses and see that positive depiction. But, verse 17, the wisdom that comes from heaven, there it is, when it says from heaven, it means that this kind of transform, transformation requires the sanctifying work of God, right? This is literally, this can only happen in the life of a Christian. If you're not a Christian, the world is your tutor. If you're not a Christian, the flesh owns you. If you're not a Christian, the demonic forces have their way. But when you are a Christian, the work of God in your life, the indwelling spirit, is, the big word is, and Vera's not going to do a big word, so i got to show her I can do a big word sanctifying, making us holy, cleaning our hearts from harboring bitter envy and selfish ambition. That is the work of God. This doesn't mean we're not striving to obey and submit, but that our striving will be according to Scripture, the gracious, redeeming work of God. Again, what does this very book say in chapter 1? If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Or Proverbs 2, 6, the Lord gives wisdom. Like such verses remind us that this work that James 3 is talking about is the process of being a disciple in the household of God the Father through the mediating work of Christ and the empowering and transforming ministry of the Spirit among us. And then James there in verse 17 lists seven, seven traits. The Bible loves the number seven. This isn't supposed to be an all-encompassing list. Seven symptoms, traits of wisdom, a rule of thumb. Like, how do you know if a person is a good woman or a good man? You'll see this. They won't talk this. They'll live this. Remember verse 13? They're not just talking this. They're showing this by their lives. First of all, middle of 17, first of all, pure. Then peace-loving. Considerate. Submissive. Full of mercy and good fruit. Impartial and sincere. Now, we could sit here and define each of these categories, and that would be understandable. But I don't want them to be abstracted. They're best defined not as propositions, ideas, but as postures lived out. Notice all seven describe wisdom not by what, not by what wisdom does, but, 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 but how it works out. Picture the way such a person would act in various situations. Picture it. Picture them when they find out that they got a health concern. Picture them when their spouse says something dislikable. Picture this when their kid gets into real trouble and they're hurt. Picture this when they find out that their job is ending in four weeks. Picture this when they feel concern about their community or their culture or their country. Picture them during COVID. 
Picture them around a general election when their neighbor has a very different political view. Picture them when they're at schnooks and someone's offensive and butts in front of them in line. Again, it's not a category you just define. It's what a person does. They're pure. They seek peace. It doesn't mean they're bullied. It just means they are looking for God to intervene. They're considerate. They're submissive. They're full of mercy and good fruit. They're impartial and they're sincere. As much as they can hurt and suffer, as much as they can get frustrated and even get angry, as much as they can get sick and lose their jobs and have people get angry at them, be totally offended, and even get very, very bad news, these virtues permeate the wise man or wise woman's life and it permeate their actions in palpable ways. You can see it. You can feel it. And I love the language in verse 18 that ends our text. And I'm not sure why James picked one of the seven. But he gives an example of one of the seven, the peace-loving. He says peacemakers. And he uses an agricultural imagery, which is beautiful. Uh, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. A peacemaker, James is saying, is like a farmer who sows the fields in which they live and work, which in its proper time yields a harvest of righteousness. Again, picture this person being your spouse, sowing peace. Picture this person being your neighbor. Picture this person being your coworker. Picture this person being your parent or your grandparent. Picture this person being in your small group. Picture this person serving on a one on Wednesday night. Picture this person sitting next to you in growth hour when you forgot your sheet. Picture this person parking next to you in the middle of a, of a, middle of a busy, busy parking lot in Walmart. Picture this person standing next to you at the DMV. What are they doing that's different? What makes them a good woman or a good man? And it's sowing like a farmer to reap a harvest that bears fruit that all may find satisfaction in. You are invited by James to be that farmer. And hopefully, you will have a neighboring farmer who's planting the same crop of righteousness everywhere you will live and walk near them. In this cultural moment when anger and rage are on full volume, when our news and other media seek to grab our attention with tactics of fear, the image of a peacemaker is startling. Not just in the first century when James wrote this, but even in the 21st century. So are you wise and understanding? What does James mean when he says that? Do you, do you get an image? I think a lot of different examples could relate to that. A lot of little glimpses. 
Not, not of anyone in perfection, right? They, as if there, there's an individual man or a woman who fully magnifies this. But arguably, a disciple of Jesus would reflect these traits in palpable ways and in growing ways as they mature and submit their lives to King Jesus and the work of the Spirit among them. One little testimony just I witnessed this week I think is worth sharing in closing. As, as Casey announced, and as you may have heard, our brother Jim passed away Tuesday night around 7.15 p.m. And I, I was with Jim and Irene on Monday midday and was sitting by his bed and holding his hand and talking to his wife. And I was just blown away because I've been in these scenarios before and you can feel pretty broken. When your loved one is dying and when life is, it's hard, it's hard. I mean, that's like, there's no, there's no playing around. You're not just blowing smoke. You're dealing with reality. And you're facing this. And I was just thankful for Irene's testimony of wisdom. She spoke to me in the middle, like standing next to her husband. She spoke about God's great faithfulness to her. She spoke about the love and support of her church family. She praised you. She praised you. Too many to name that called and reached out and provided and fixed things and did all these things over years. I mean, Irene has faithfully been caring for Jim's suffering body for a long time. She even looked at her husband's life from the perspective of the new creation. That's perspective. Not just now or that moment of loss or that brokenness of pain. She said, he is soon to be with the Lord. He will hurt no more. That's submission to God. That's the wisdom of being considerate. That's the wisdom that shows itself in being full of mercy and good fruit and being sincere. And she shared a story with me. She said just a few days before, shortly before he was no longer able to speak, she was doing something where she overheard his prayer. And he was praying. He was asking the Lord with all his suffering to bring him home soon, which is an understandable prayer. He said something like, Lord, you know I've wanted to be in your presence for some time now. And then she said, Jim said this, but now I say to you, your will be done. And there's that submission. Do you feel it? Not, you don't write that out on a test. There's a man whose body is hurting who says, your will be done. There's peace. There's a harvest. That's wisdom done in humility, in brokenness, that James is calling all of us to display as we submit to King Jesus, as we receive this challenging question from God the Father, and as we allow the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to form us so that with our hands open, we can simply do what the Lord's Prayer says to give us today the trust in Him. Your kingdom come. Your, your will be done on earth in me 
as it is in heaven. That's way easy to write about on a test. It's way hard to live. So the next time you hear somebody say, he's a good man, you might want to just nod and agree. You might want to say, what do you mean by good? Is it because he or she does deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom? If so, that is a mature disciple of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to not harbor envy and ambition in our hearts and to receive from you the work of your spirit and our own commitment to obedience, the seven symptoms you list here of a life of wisdom done in humility. Lord, help that to be reflected in our lives that we would receive in the hard moments, Father, the hard things when Life is taking away something that hurts so much for us to still be able to live and say, he gives and takes away. Still we will sing, blessed be the name of the Lord. Help that to be us. Work in the disciples of this church to make us mature, to have understanding, to be wise, to not be knocked around by the storms in our life. And to be sowing in our families, in our church family, in our community, in our places of work, in our schools where we go or, 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 or co-op groups or, or whatever activity we're involved in, sports teams, clubs, help, help us to be sowing a harvest of righteousness that stems from being disciples who have drenched their lives in humility and begin to grow in wisdom under the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. We pray this in his name. Amen.